Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. George Monbiot er en af Storbritanniens vigtigste klimajournalister og klimaaktivister. Han kalder sig selv for en professional troublemaker. George Monbiot har i mere end tre årtier lavet forskellige former for klimajournalistik. Han har organiseret klimabevægelser, han har skrevet bøger, han har talt på konferencer, han har talt til demonstrationer. Han har engageret sig i alle klimakampens fronter i mere end tre årtier. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially good evening to you George Monbiot who's with us from Devon. Good evening Rune. And thank you so much for taking your time. I've seen you refer to yourself as a professional troublemaker. <laughs> We admire that. You're also an environmental activist and journalist, a columnist at The Guardian, the author of several books that we all reviewed here in Information and most recently an absolutely wonderful book that I recommend to anyone. It's called Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. Senest har George Monbiot udgivet bog, der hedder Regenesis. I den bog tager George Monbiot to udfordringer op på samme tid. Han vil konfrontere fødevarekrisen, det forhold, at mange millioner mennesker i verden sulter, og han vil konfrontere klimakrisen. Og her fokuserer han på det forhold, at vores jord er ved at være ødelagt på samme måde, som vi har diskuteret temperaturer og forskellige økosystemer, så er jorden også sit eget komplicerede økosystem, som er ved at være ødelagt af at være udpint i århundreder af intensivt landbrug. Man kan ikke løse fødevarekrisen, hvis man ikke også løser klimakrisen, hævder George Monbiot. Men man kan heller ikke løse klimakrisen, hvis man ikke skaffer mad til de 100 millioner, der mangler det. Det er en fantastisk bog. Det er et enormt ambitiøst projekt. Og så er George Monbiot et pragtfuldt menneske, et forbillede for meget af vores arbejde på information i mange år. Her følger min samtale med George Monbiot. I was quite surprised to learn, because I was seeing how old are you, that you're only 59. I thought you were older than that, because it seems to me that you've been around forever with your environmental journalism. We've been following your work for decades. So my first question is, how long have you been doing environmental journalism and how did you get started? Thanks. For, well, um, I, I started in um, 1985 when I was 22. Um, and the only thing I wanted to make was investigative environmental programs for the BBC, and such things did not exist at the time. So I knocked their, on their doors and knocked on their doors until I was told, and these are the exact words, well, slightly censored, um, from the boss of the Natural History Unit, you are so effing persistent, you've got the job. <laughs> and um, and so um, I had a great couple of years at the BBC making these really hard-hitting in, investigative programs we um scored some really big scoops there and we won awards and it all seemed great and i thought right this is my future and then after two years mrs thatcher launched her coup against the bbc forced the director general to resign and instantly it just turned into this completely different organization i mean the very next day my boss came in and said i've heard it from the top no more investigative programs and i said what what do you mean <laughs> more investigative programs he said no that's it and i said but you can't be a journalist unless you're investigative we have to be investigative he said look it's not my fault i'm getting it from the top and at the time i was working on 
this very big story about um, the Indonesian transmigration program, moving hundreds of thousands of people out of the inner islands to the outer islands and massive environmental destruction, displacement of the indigenous people, terrible things going on, all funded by the World Bank, the US, the UK. So I thought, well, actually, the story is what counts for me. And so I left the BBC and I managed to find funds from a publisher to to pursue the investigation independently. And so that's what I did and, and took it from there. So I left the BBC in 1987. I was 24 and completely mad. <laughs> it had to be. It was the craziest venture going off to West Papua mostly and other um, part where well, West Papua was an occupied territory of Indonesia, but other remote parts of Indonesia investigating this terrible thing that the Suharto dictatorship was doing um, with a friend. And we so nearly got killed so many times. It was pretty miraculous that we came back. What was the, you know, sometimes we refer to Margaret Thatcher as say she was conscious of climate change. She was talking about climate change. And we to say to people, this has not always been a leftist agenda, which mm. has become over the years. And I think that's not a good thing, basically. So what was the occasion for her coup against the BBC and your program? So, so the BBC had um, uh, really enraged her by, by doing two um, uh, sets of investigative programmes. One was called Maggie's Militant Tendency, um, showing that several of her cabinet ministers had been fascists in their youth. And the other was called a series called Secret Society, um, documenting the uh, un- disclosed spending on a vast scale that the government was doing on various secret defence projects and things which it hadn't cleared with Parliament. And she just went ballistic and shut it all down. Now, you know, her environmentalism was quite strongly stated at times. And in a narrow sense, it was real. But unfortunately, everything else she did undermined um, those those green policies and made it impossible for them really to take root. Looking back, because I remember I, I was only 10 years in 1984, but I remember in the 80s and 90s, a lot of environmental journalism was about to convince people that the damage were happening and, and, you know, that was even before James Hansen came to Congress. It was before the Wundland Report. It was before the, the Rio Summit. What was it like at the time back then to do environmental journalism? Well, it, it felt quite exciting because there was a sense that there, were, there was so little discussion of environmental issues. Um, there was so much to be said, so much to be investigated. And I really naively believed that all I had to do was to show people what was going wrong and people would want to put it right and things would get fixed. And I had this, I mean, I, you know, it really sounds stupid now, but I really thought that's how the world works. Just people needed better information and then they would act on that and make rational decisions. And of course, you know, bitter experience shows me that's not quite how it works. No, and, that, and that's, I think that was for like that for us for many years. I mean, it's not until recently we thought that if that knowledge would lead to action, you know, if, you, if you've ever been a smoker, you know that that's not how it works. But we thought that for a long time. And I think we have re- remains of that attitude with us uh, at, at times. 
But I wonder now, when now we have a different situation, we have our, our leaders, when, whenever there's a COP26, in a little while there's a COP27. Last year in Glasgow, you heard Boris Johnson actually say the right things to a certain extent. So at times I wonder who are actually the adversaries now? What, what, what's the resistance? Where is it? Because we see people saying all the right things. And now you have a green environmental minister in Germany who knows more about it than I do, do at least. And you see him, he re reigniting fossil fuels and, and coal in, in Germany. And I know this is a big question, but it's also an important question that who are the adversaries? Where's the resistance? Well, this is where it gets really complicated because they have learned that they don't have to attack the science. They don't have to attack environmentalists. They don't have to say we're going to destroy the environmental agenda to destroy the environmental agenda. They can say all the right things and those words are cheap and they can then, through a thousand cuts, destroy the green programs which are necessary to make those words meaningful. And unfortunately, certainly in this country, we've seen that happening again and again. Um, you know, we, we had a government of liars under Boris Johnson. He was the liar in chief. His words meant nothing. His promises meant nothing. Everything was a lie. If his lips were moving, he was lying. And we now have a prime minister who is frankly fanatical. She's fanatically devoted to the neoliberal agenda, which basically means the agenda of the corporations and the oligarchs, she will sweep anything out of the way in order to give them what they want. And of course, they're never satisfied. They never say, oh, thanks very much. We've got what we want now. We'll go home. <laughs> they want everything. They, they really want everything. So she's ripping down labor standards, ripping down environmental standards, ripping down the taxes that the rich must pay, ripping down a whole series of public protections. It's, it's a really terrifying situation. And still she pays lip service. Just today she paid lip service to, you know, we've got to sort out environmental issues and it means nothing. <laughs> and that's uh, in a way far harder to oppose than those people who are saying, we don't care about environmental issues, um, climate change isn't happening anyway, um, you can all go and take a running jump. You can fight those people more easily in a way. Yeah. Um, but this slipperiness, this lying, this deceit, that's harder to fight. How do you see over the years, because I think when we look back at our in environmental journalism, of course we pride ourselves that we've been part of the movement and we still are. But I think we also acknowledge that we made some mistakes. One of them was that we turned it into an expert-driven discourse, that it was like seeing the world through science, and it wasn't very appealing to people who are not accustomed to scientific language. Another one, I think, another mistake I think we made was that we turned it into an either-or. Either we win this battle or we lose it. Either climate change will happen or we will return to the climate as it was before. I think these were two mistakes that we still struggle with. What, what do you see as the mistakes of climate journalism? Well, as environmentalists and, and as journalists, we tend to be quite self-flagellating. You know, we say, <laughs> oh, perhaps we should have done more of this and less of that, or more of that and less of this. And, and, and you know, I've heard people argue it every way around. You know, we, we were too extreme. We weren't extreme enough. Um, we, we frightened people too much. We didn't frighten people enough. And frankly, there is no magic formula. That's what I found. I mean, I've tried everything, every possible argument to see which ones work. And, and, and by themselves, none of them do. I mean, the fundamental problem 
I don't think is the way that we've been pitching it because we've, you know, there are lots of great journalists, love, lovely and wonderful people in this space trying their hardest to find the right way. What we're up against is a wall of money. We're just being outspent, massively outspent. I mean, the, the, the fossil fuel industry has been making phenomenal profits for the last 50 years. I mean, billions every day. And they've poured loads of that money into thwarting effective environmental action. And they've found loads of ways to do it, buying politicians outright, buying think tanks to argue on, on their behalf, um, using a whole lot of greenwashing campaigns to persuade us that they've gone green when they haven't and that nothing needs to be done, um, placing articles in, in the press. I mean, everything. They, they just have this massive force that we do not, possess so we are outnumbered outflanked uh, we just don't have their resources and that is the fundamental problem the only thing we've got is human numbers is is trying to mobilize people to act democratically to to block those undemocratic plutocratic interests and to um, demand from government the green policies that we desperately need but the trouble is when those same interests control most of the media, you know, and, and I don't know about in Denmark, but in, in the UK, most of our media is in the hands of billionaires and their corporations. Um, and what they want is everything. And they want to clear the likes of you and me out of the way so that they can get everything. Then it's very hard to get across to people what needs to happen. There's a, a passage in your new book that I was struck by where you say that you've been amazed by the cultural power over the years. And you say when cultural power meets economic power, that cultural power wins. And I was surprised by, by that because I tend, maybe because I define cultural power in too narrow a sense. What is the cultural power? Well, so I was looking specifically at agriculture in that case, which you know economically is not a massive sector. And particularly, um, certain aspects of agriculture like beef production it's really quite a small sector economically but it draws on this massive cultural power which is a sort of deep root metaphors going back thousands of years about um, the shepherd with his flocks being the seat of innocence and purity while the city is a seat of evil and corruption these are ideas which are in the old testament they're in pastoral poetry going back to the third century bc Theocritus, and then later on Virgil. And then, of course, they come together in the New Testament with Jesus being both the Good Shepherd and the Lamb of God. And then that gets picked up big time in the Renaissance, bringing together the religious tradition and the poetic tradition. Um, and then in the 20th century, uh, it gets revived massively, partly with books for very young children, uh, which portray the livestock farm as a place of harmony and peace with one rosy cheek farmer and one horse and one cow and one sheep and one pig and one cat and they all talk to each other and they all live like a family and there's no indication of where they might be going or why they might be there um, and and also uh, in this country we have um, 
these programs on the television about sheep farming all the time about <laughs> uh, um, sort of one man and his dog and lambing live and all the rest of it and all saying this is this wonderful industry part of our heritage etc in north america of course they have the whole western tradition the cowboy tradition you know this was the reality of the situation was indigenous people being being deprived of their lands, terrible bloodshed and, and brutality taking place, but it's all been romanticised. And it's those romanticised visions which create a sort of ring of power surrounding that industry, which makes it very hard to challenge. And so in that case, its cultural power is much greater than its economic power. Of course, that's not always the case, especially with the more recent industries. I mean, fossil fuels the economic power is, is greater than the cultural power because it doesn't have a great deal of cultural power. But between the two things, if there's a tremendously cultural, powerful industry, I think that seems to overwhelm economic power. Yeah, I think it's. I think we have the same story of farming in Denmark, that we grew out of farming, and this is where true morality resides still, and this is where people have authentic and and i think even there's it's not said in those words that there's a sense that they lived in a sustainable way and their lives were sustainable and in the cities it's not sustainable so so let's turn to a new book uh, what was the what was the background for the book uh, there, it seems that there's a personal story behind it mm. well i became fascinated by soil um, <laughs> partly because where i was living at the time in in central england I was getting quite ecologically bored. There weren't <laughs> many places left to explore. The rivers are full of shit there. Um, I mean, they're in a terrible state. Um, the the forests are pretty ragged. There's not much to see in them. Um, the rest of the land is is quite heavily cultivated and, and you don't see much wildlife. And I was thinking, what can I explore that I haven't already explored to death? <laughs> and, uh, and then I realized, oh, I'm standing on it. <laughs> and... And soil is as diverse and abundant as a rainforest or a coral reef. Um, in fact, more than that, it is like a coral reef. It's a biological structure. It's built by the creatures that live in it. Without those creatures, there would be no soil um, because they give it the structure, which means it stays on the ground. If it were just a heap of mud, it would just sweep off the ground with the first rainstorm or windstorm. And it's absolutely fascinating i mean it's the most mind-blowing ecosystem and as you dig deeper metaphorically <laughs> dig deeper um you you discover these astonishing properties which you know every one of them just blows you away and you think how come no one ever told me this how come you know i've got a background in biology i've spent my whole life as an environmental journalist and i didn't know about this and and again and again, I was coming across this. And then, and that fascination with soil led me back to issues which have been troubling me really for the whole of my adult life. I mean, when I was a teenager, I worked on an intensive pig farm just as a holiday job, well, for a few months before university. And it, it was horrible. I mean, it was, it was brutal. I, I worked hard. I'm a good worker and I quite, I enjoy physical work, but it was just horrendous seeing what we were doing to the pigs, thousands of pigs crammed together. And there were two thoughts which just kept occurring to me. And the first was, 
this isn't what they told me farming was about. <laughs> you know, I still had that romantic image of what farming is, particularly livestock farming. And the second was, why is this legal? And 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 as I began to get back in, get into soil ecology, all the questions which I'd been tackling marginally, peripherally uh, throughout these years involving food and farming, they all started to come to the fore. And, and I began to realise that a lot of what we've been told is simply wrong. And a lot of the what people consider to be the truths about food and the truths about farming are just not true. And the more I investigated, the more fascinated and horrified I became, but the more intrigued also by some of the astonishing possibilities for changing the way that we feed ourselves. I feel it's like one of those experiences that we have over and over again with climate crisis that you, you get to experience the complexity that you ignored as soon as you realize that it's almost being destroyed. That in yeah. this sense that this ecosystem that sustains our lives that you come to truly recognize the richness and the complexity of them at the same time that they realize that they're heavily endangered. Isn't that the experience? It's so often the case, isn't it, that we only value something when it's trickling away through our fingers. Um, and this is certainly the case with soil. I mean, it's it's being lost so quickly. You know, this is this amazing ecosystem, but we treat it like dirt. Um, and, and we don't understand what we're destroying. And actually, it's a sort of the, the mainstream neoliberal thought which governs, uh, dominates governments around the world. Um, it, this leading figure in, in formulating it was Friedrich Hayek. And in one of his books, Constitution of Liberty, he, he, he specifically talks about soil. And he says, if you just um, use up all the soil, you can put the money into something else instead. So you could just sort of exhaust the soil and then um, use the money that you've made by producing very intensively in, in something else. You think, no, 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 sorry. If you've exhausted the soil, there is nothing left. We're finished. That's it. That's the <laughs> end of the story. 99% of our calories come from the soil. And without soil, we are dead. Everything's gone. All that money which he was obsessed with does not exist anymore. It has no meaning. It has no value. And, and it's quite amazing that we, you know, we, we've managed almost to make a fetish out of destruction or, and to see it, as, as, to celebrate it in this case. I mean, he literally celebrates the idea of burning through the world's resources, just destroying resources in order to make money, which we can then invest elsewhere. And, and that will make us richer and we'll all be happy. And you think it doesn't work like that. But it's also, so I was surprised to learn how little research that's been done into soil. I mean, you go through a lot of reports. You must have worked so hard to write this book. The amount of research that that that, that you go through is, is incredible. But it's, it's also struck me that there's a kind of ignorance on behalf of people like me. You know, we've been talking much about ice caps, about temperatures, about hurricanes, you know, but all natural phenomena. But the ground that we're standing on, we haven't been very much into that. No, and, and I was the same. You know, I couldn't believe it. You know, I've explored every kind of ecosystem, <laughs> but but not the, the one which really underlies, literally underlies most most of them and, and on which we are totally dependent. And and I mean, it's amazing. I mean, just to get, I'll try to make this quick because it's 
it's mind-blowing and, and we, we need to know about this, right? Between 10 and 40% of all the sugars which plants make, they dump into the soil. And before they dump them, they turn some of them into compounds of tremendous complexity. And it looks like throwing money down the drain, right? But, but what they're doing is they're talking to bacteria and stimulating the growth of bacteria in the soil. And, and as they uh, release these very complex chemicals, they wake up particular bacteria species they want to talk to, wake them out of their sense of dormancy, flood them with sugar so that they multiply very rapidly. And these bacteria form a ring around the root hair, a very, very dense community, which then delivers minerals to the plants, forms a defensive line around the root, preventing pathogens from, from attacking it, also far up the plant's immune system and deliver growth hormones to the plant. And, and, and as I began exploring this, reading a fascinating series of scientific papers on it, I kept being struck by a thought, I, I know this story, I've heard this before, there's something very familiar about it. And then suddenly it was like, bang, it's the human gut. And, and basically we got, you know, very dense bacterial communities, <laughs> exchanging sugars for minerals and other things, breaking down uh, the food, delivering it to us, stimulating the immune system, fighting off other pathogens. And then I discovered that of the thousand or so bacterial phyla, um, there are four in particular in the human gut which dominate. And there are four in the zone surrounding the root hair, which dominate. And they're the same four. It's a really extraordinary thing. The, the rhizosphere, the zone of soil surrounding the root is the external gut of the plant. And if you destroy the soil, if you destroy those bacterial communities, if you destroy, then your plants are not gonna thrive. And that's what we've been finding. We didn't know what we were doing, but that's what we've been doing. And I think we're familiar in a popular scientific sense, not I wouldn't claim a deep scientific understanding of how ecosystems work, that they correct up to a certain point, that they self-stabilize when, when we inflict damage on them. But at a certain point, they act the other way. The feedback mechanisms and the spillovers are against us. And now we have to basically recreate something which is a lot harder than sustaining it. It's the same with the soil, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So this is a property of all complex systems that they, um, through the random in interactions of, of, of billions of decision points within a complex system, they have these remarkable counterintuitive properties, which very few of us have ever, are ever taught. I mean, I, I did zoology, uh, sorry, ecology as part of my degree. And so I learned about complex systems, but you know, very few people at any point in their education are taught about complex systems. Yet everything important to us is a complex system. Exactly. Starting with the human brain, the human body, <laughs> human society, every ecosystem, including the soil, the climate, ocean currents, the ice caps, the global financial system, the global food system, they're all complex systems and they all operate according to these same rules. And as you say, one of those rules of operation is that these random interactions on a large enough scale end up having self-regulating properties. They, they have negative feedback loops, which damp down shocks and bring it back into a state of, of stable equilibrium. But if you push it too far, and if you hammer and hammer and hammer that complex system and erode its resilience, then there's a certain point at which those self-regulating 
loops become self-amplifying loops. And instead of damping down the shocks that hit the system, they amplify the shocks that hit the system. And the system's outputs then begin to fluctuate wildly. Um, Scientists call it flickering. You get this flickering effect as it gets less and less stable. And then suddenly it reaches a tipping point and it just collapses. And in the case of soil, um, that collapse is a dust bowl. Now, we're all familiar with the Great Dust Bowl of the 1930s in the US, but there have been many Dust Bowls before that and many Dust Bowls after that, which, which are less famous. But what happens in that situation is that you degrade the soil uh, through bad farming practice again and again and again. You don't notice very much to begin with. And then suddenly it gets hit by an external shock. And far from absorbing that shock, the soil uh, in its degraded state, it amplifies the shock. And and so with a major drought hitting a severely degraded soil, the erosion rate will rise 6,000-fold effectively overnight. In other words, the whole soil structure just collapses. The life forms in it die or go dormant. Thing just collapses, falls off a cliff. There's no structure left to hold the soil together, and it blows away in the wind. That's a dust bowl. And we don't want to reach that. We, we we don't want to reach that. But what makes your book extremely ambitious is that you have this double program that you want to solve the food crisis and the soil crisis at the same time. And when we hear, you know, we would think that intensive farming that's the easiest and the cheapest way to produce food for the for the world. And we understand that in your book that there were the food crisis actually started in 2014-15 and not with the Ukraine war. So how should we keep this double problem in our head at the same time? Yeah, so so this is the central challenge of the book. We feeding the world without devouring the planet. And um, it's Yeah, it's phenomenally complicated. I mean, I think I've got some answers. I think I think there are answers, but they're not the answers that most people think of. Exactly. And it's absolutely true that we need to maintain high yields because if if we replace the high yield farming that we've got with low yield farming, then you just need to occupy far more land. And the biggest ecological threat on Earth is agricultural sprawl. We all know about urban sprawl, right? We're all familiar with that, and we don't like urban sprawl, and nor should we. Uh, but the entire urban area on planet Earth occupies 1% of the land surface. The agricultural area occupies 38% of the land surface, and the great majority of that is very low-yield agriculture. And every hectare of land that we're using to produce food is a hectare that can't support a wild ecosystem, like a forest, like a wetland, um, like, like, like a savanna. Um, and our prospects, the prospects of all life on Earth, depends on there being wild ecosystems, depends on those being large and thriving, because if they collapse, everything goes down with them. And what's pushing them towards collapse faster than anything else is farming. And so yields have to be high, but impacts have to be low. Because if we are gaining those high yields at the expense of the soil, um, and by slapping on vast amounts of pesticides and fertilizers, irrigation water, or all the other um, inputs which have proved so damaging, then um, that's not going to work either. And we're going to starve uh, because we're going to lose the soil and we're going to lose the basis of our subsistence. And so what I've been looking for 
are means of food production which are high yielding and low impact. And there are very, very few of them around. There are some examples and I've managed to find some and they're really inspiring and fascinating examples. But the research and development money, which should be multiplying those examples as quickly as possible, simply does not exist. Governments aren't interested. Um, chemicals companies obviously aren't interested. You know, the, the, the usual forms of funding just are not there. And so, you know, we desperately need to change the way that we approach the whole issue. Yeah, you, you recommend what you call a farm-free revolution in the last part of the book. And And you have, which you often do, you have quite concrete practical suggestions. Could you tell some of some of the, the, the elements of the farm-free revolution? Sure. So I break the food system down into three areas. Um, horticulture, which is fruit and veg, arable farming, mostly for grain, and um, protein-rich foods, um, which are mostly supplied um, at the moment through animals or through soya and um, a few other protein-rich crops. And there are massive problems in every single area, <laughs> but there are also some really fascinating solutions. So in horticulture, for instance, um, I spent a long time following a grower who has managed to raise his fertility and his yields um, over 34 years without any fertilizer or any manure. And he's done so by anticipating some of the new findings in soil ecology. He kind of got there before the scientists did. He understood that what he was dealing with was the very complex relationship between plants, bacteria and fungi. And he was he's found ways of mediating that relationship to stimulate the, um, the growth of the bacteria and fungi just at the point when the plant needs them. And so that they, they, they release minerals at that point and then they lock them up at other points when the plant doesn't need them. And, and he's got quite a complex system. It's very labor intensive, but it's incredibly successful in terms of producing high yields with absolutely minimal impacts. Um, and quite a few um, other growers have managed to, to, to copy what he does. He's a man called Ian Tolhurst or Tolly, uh, working in central England, but some haven't. And we don't know why, we don't know why It, it can be successfully replicated in some cases and not in others. And so, again, we need just much more research there. When it comes to grain, I, I think the most exciting, I mean, there's lots of possibilities, but the most exciting possibility for radically changing the way we produce grain to maintain high yields and low impacts is switching from annual grain crops to perennial grain crops. In other words, from plants which live and die within one year to plants which persist from year to year. Now, large areas covered by annual plants are quite rare in nature, and they generally happen only in, in the wake of a disaster. So when there's been a volcanic eruption or a landslide or a major fire, um, and it kills off all the vegetation, then the uh, annual plants can move in and colonize that ground and they'll um, thrive for a couple of years. And then the perennial plants will come back in and drown them out. And so in order to grow our annual crops, we have to create a disaster every year. <laughs> we had to either plow the land or spray it with herbicides to kill off everything. And then you've got these seeds which need a lot of attention and the little seedlings, you need to give them loads of support with fertilizer, with irrigation. You have to kill off the pests. You have to kill off the competing plants. Um, and so it's a very damaging, ecologically damaging practice. Um, but if you can grow plants which last from year to year to year, 
I mean, they don't last forever, but for several years at a time, then you can greatly reduce those impacts. And there's a group called the Land Institute in Kansas, which is now is developing a whole series of different lines of perennial grain. One of them, a, a, a variety of rice, um, is fully commercialized and being sold in, in southern China and it has the same yields as annual rice. And yet it persists for several years at, at a time and it greatly reduces erosion rates because there's much less plowing. The farmers are particularly keen because it also greatly reduces labor because all the young people have moved to the cities. And so, so they're desperate for this seed and, and I've eaten it. It's identical to short grain rice. It's just the same. Um, so that's a very exciting way forward. And again, a desperate need for research and development. I mean, it's been left to this small NGO in, in, in Kansas to, to, to do all this. You know, there should be huge government programs working on this. But perhaps the most radical of all these approaches is, as you say, the farm-free approach, which addresses that third category, the protein-rich foods, which are by far the most damaging. You know, it's those which are really wrecking the planet, particularly animal agriculture. And just in the nick of time, um, we have a, I think, what promises to be a very good substitute, which is precision fermentation, a refined form of brewing, multiplying microbes to produce a very protein rich flour, which can then be used much more effectively than any plant product to produce a huge range of protein rich foods, substitutes for animal products, but also a whole cuisine we haven't even imagined yet uh, because you know we the chefs haven't got to work on this. So I went to um, a laboratory in Helsinki run by a group called Solar Foods who are growing hydrogen oxygenating bacteria. And these are bacteria whose feedstock is hydrogen. That's their energy source. They use it in the same way as a plant uses sunlight, um, except it's much more efficient than photosynthesis. The company makes the, the hydrogen from, from solar power through electrolysis of water and feeds that with some water, with a very small amount of fertilizer and with carbon dioxide to the bacteria. And they then multiply very quickly and produce this flour, which is about 65% protein and 35% fat. And I, I asked them to make me a pancake. I wanted to be the first person on earth outside the laboratory to eat a pancake made from this, this new bacterial flour, a small flip for man. And, um, and, and so they made one for me. They had to dilute the flour instantly. You know, when, when you make an ordinary pancake, you start with wheat flour, right? And you add egg and milk to raise the protein and the fat content. But in this case, we had to reduce the protein and fat content. Otherwise, we would have made an omelette. Um, and I made this pancake. And the amazing thing about it was it was a pancake. It was just identical. You really couldn't tell the difference. And it was delicious. It, was, it tasted really nice. It was just, a, just an ordinary pancake. And yet it was made of this extraordinary thing. Um, but they're not just in the business of making pancakes. You know, the, the, the possibilities are enormous. And the thing about this technology is it uses a tiny amount of land, a tiny amount of water, a tiny amount of fertilizer. Um, it can absolutely minimize the footprint of food production and revolutionize the way we feed ourselves. And that is a, a key to feeding the world without devouring the planet. I mean, there are now a large number of countries which are totally import dependent, they're extremely vulnerable, they can't produce enough food for themselves as they don't have sufficient fertile land and sufficient water. But by this means they could 
produce their own food. They wouldn't have to be import dependent anymore. But it's very important that we get in there fast and say, this mustn't be snaffled up by big corporations. It must be small and medium enterprises which, which develop this. And I'd like to see a microbrewery on the edge of every town producing um, protein-rich foods tailored to local markets. And, and that is really a fascinating uh, reportage from Helsinki. But if this is to succeed with the speed that we needed to succeed, then we also need a kind of cultural revolution around that. Another way of thinking about food that is not that is not this uh, romanticism of of the of the organic farming and not the foodies culture. So we must we need a kind of cultural revolution to kind of facilitate and to put public pressure on it, don't we? It's it's very disturbing and dangerous, I think, that the. Um, discussions about food have really been dominated by generally very wealthy people who like to have a certain diet, which everyone can't eat because there's simply not enough planet for them to do so. They talk about pasture-fed beef. You know, if everybody ate pasture-fed beef, we'd need several planets. There'd be no room at all for wild ecosystems. It's simply impossible to, to feed the world by the means that they suggest. And a lot of these advocates are highly conservative, even reactionary, and yet they've come to dominate these discussions. And they're not interested, or they don't seem to show any interest at all about how poorer people are going to be fed. Where the, where is the food going to come from? Nor do they seem interested in, in preserving the world's ecosystems, which are greatly threatened by our attempts to, to make sure that everybody is fed. And it's a sort of let them eat, eat cake mentality, This this sort of extreme dismissal of the lives of billions and indeed the lives of all of us because we will not have a habitable planet unless we reform this system well i have one last question but it's a big question uh, but i've been looking forward to asking it to you you know when i was a child i grew up in the 70s i thought that humans we would progress and we would solve our problems women would be liberated and racism was something that we were getting rid of slowly. So I had this tremendous belief in humankind. And then as I grew older, I realized that we had this climate problem. And I thought, well, if people knew they would do something, I realized now they know they don't do something. And and it kind of changes my perspective on human beings and on the human race. And it puts me in a place that I don't like being, you know, I don't like being misanthropic. And I when I was growing up, And I had some very religious grandparents that were great, but they were also saying, well, humans are sinners. Let's not expect, let's not expect too much. And, and over time, doing the work that you do with, with so much devotion and commitment that you do, how did that change your view on human beings and on the human race? Well, you'll be surprised at the answer, but I actually, I feel more optimistic about human beings than I did before. Um, because I judged people by what they do, but actually what we are is better than what we do. There's been a huge amount of science on this. And in fact, um, it, uh, it's been summarized in uh, Rutger Brigman's book, Humankind, um, drawn from lots of different fields, from social psychology, from anthropology, from neuroscience, showing that by and large, our values are good ones. We are very altruistic and empathetic. 
but we're constantly misled by people in power. I mean, to put it crudely, we are a society of altruists governed by psychopaths. <laughs> and it's that small percentage of psychopaths who tend to dominate us and tend to govern our societies who, who make us do bad things. They push us in bad directions. I mean, people, you know, when you, when you survey people, People want to have a double planet. They want everybody to be fed. They want everybody to have a roof over their heads. They want to have good, thriving, equal societies. They don't want to live like we live, but we constantly get pushed into that by this oligarchic power that, that we suffer from in just about every society now. And I also think that, you know, as we... You know, but when we're allowed to release those capacities, we do start to discover our good nature. And we've seen lots, lots of examples of that, particularly when people are in a desperate situation. You know, then they really start helping their neighbors. They look out for other people. And there's another book in, in that respect, um, Rebecca Solnit's book, A Paradise Built in Hell. So it, it's not people that are the problem. It's, uh, well, I suppose there is a problem. There is a problem in that we put obedience above survival you know everybody says you know we put our survival instinct first no we put our obedience instinct first that's the fundamental problem i think that's the kink in the human brain the flaw with human beings is that we will obey even when it means we go to our deaths and that works at the individual level and it works at the planetary level too we have to stop obeying we must disobey every freedom we possess has come about as a result of civil disobedience. The fact that we can have this free conversation is because of civil disobedience. The fact we have a vote is because of civil disobedience. The fact we have a weekend is because <laughs> of civil disobedience, right? And we have to be disobedient. Otherwise we will obey all the way to the destruction of life on earth. Well, thank you. And I promise you that we will obey and be disobedient and we will be <laughs> systematic here. George Bonebill, thank you so much for your work and for your optimism and for everything you do. You've been a great inspiration for us. And thank you for the time tonight. Thank you so much, Runa. Thank you. Really great to talk. Det var min samtale med George Bonebill. Vi er blevet nødt til at lave en lille smule om i vores til rettelæggelse, fordi Jason Hickel, som jeg skulle have talt med i forrige uge, desværre blev syg, og derfor har vi rykket George Monbiot frem. Det er der ingen mennesker, der tager skade af. Det er altid rart at høre på George Monbiot. Men det betyder også, at jeg faktisk endnu ikke ved, hvem der bliver gæst i langsomme samtaler i næste uge. Så jeg kan kun sige, at det her uges program var produceret af vores gode ven og konstante hjælper, Anne Pilegaard Petersen. Det vil hun også gøre i næste uge. Det, som jeg ikke ved, det er, hvem jeg kommer til at tale med. Men jeg lover, det bliver godt, og jeg lover, det bliver spændende. Jeg håber, vi høres ved. Tak for nu.